0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. Welcome to December 1st, 24 days and counting till Christmas. Amazing how this year has moved along. And in addition, perhaps, to the kids at home being excited about Christmas. Maybe you, too, have been excited for other reasons. It has been a Christmas a long time in coming, some argue 50-something years in coming, that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be hearing one of the most pivotal and potentially world-changing or life-changing, I should say, decisions related to Roe v. Wade that we've seen Well, certainly since 1973. The long-awaited challenge to Roe made it to the Supreme Court yesterday with oral arguments. And so far, the signaling seems to suggest a willingness to uphold the Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. Let's get all the details On progress, Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And certainly a a banner day uh, as they have begun the hearings today. And so um, let me get your thoughts, Brian, in terms of, number one, just how pivotal this potential decision may be. And um, do you hold the same sense that I do, that there seems to be, at least from comments made by some of the more recent additions to the High Court, um, a, a real interest in uh, making a reversal of Roe.
2: Yeah. Just to sum it up,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was fun to listen to it. It uh, started at 7 this morning on our end here. But the, uh, it, just as you said, it, the, it's pretty predictable, from the nature of the questions i was very proud of thomas in how he framed the assertion that there is no right to abortion in the constitution but some of his questions were very very pithy and put them on the spot kavanaugh was great he basically was trying to be nice to the the uh solicitor general of the united states a woman and her name escapes me i'll get it here in a second but uh She, of course, repeated all of the standard rhetorical arguments you hear, and basically about the liberty interest. So the question is the liberty interest to have an abortion, the freedom of choice, versus the interest of protecting life. And Justice Kavanaugh was really good at summing that up, and he almost helped her along because she would kind of... She would get on a tangent and say, well, no, I understand what you're saying. No, oh, I, I get it. You've been very forceful. You very clearly have worked. But the real question we have to look at is, which of these directions do we go in? Uh, boy, there were some, uh, uh, I think that that Justice Roberts, to be honest, was Chief Justice Roberts, did give me some pause. And again, I agree with your initial analysis, and I think that that the major media also does. They're very concerned Chagin and Sotomayor, again, standard pro-radical feminist rhetoric. Standard rhetoric in their questioning. But also a little bit of panic, you might think, in terms of how they were wording it, because they saw that their ideology is really on the ropes in this court. But what Justice Roberts did uh, makes me uncomfortable. I know we've talked about this. I think we need to recognize, as much as the media is saying, this is the decision. As I look at what the court has done regarding Texas, the court was asked by this Solicitor General, by the entire administration, as you recall, President Biden issued a demand that the entire federal government stop the Texas law. And three weeks ago, it was heard by the court. And the court said, <laughs> Well, we're not going to stop it. Let's <laughs> really had them steaming, and I believe should have them steaming. The Texas law is still in effect. And the Texas law, uh, here's the cut to the chase. You know this, that the decisions of January 22nd, 73 were plural. They had heard in 72 two different states' abortion laws. They're the laws of Texas, that was the Roe case. And they heard the Laws of Georgia, that was the Doe case. Those decisions, when you read them, they make very different points. But they were conjoined. And we call the joint decision the Roe Regiment. But it's really the product of two decisions. As you know, I wrote, I wrote a book on that. Very important to recognize that Roe is a regimen of Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolta. My great hope, and we'll know about this perhaps early in the spring. We don't know when they'll hand down their decisions. My hope is that they do the same thing. They heard two states abortion laws. My hope is they uphold them both and conjoin them. Because If you look at the bigger picture, we don't have time, but I gotta tell you, the Texas law, I think is much more powerful. Now the Chief Justice today seemed to smile on, he seemed to smile on the, uh, the Mississippi law in the 15 week threshold. I'll be honest with you, I'm concerned that if Mississippi's 15-week threshold is the new standard, things will lock in cement again for another 50 years.
1: Yeah, I guess that yeah. kind of begs the question: uh, yeah. whether or not. I mean, listening to and I didn't get a chance to hear much, but but listening to some of the the questioning today, it it, it seemed to lean more on legal semantics. As opposed Mm to kind of the core argument that that certainly from a pro-life viewpoint we would make in relationship to when does life begin and the necessity to protect it. So, uh, in your opinion, Brian, and I, and again, I realize we're you know we're 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 trying to call b- balls and strikes here before they've really <laughs> had their first t- time up at bat. But give me your yeah. your sense in terms of what direction could this potentially swing in, and is one more favorable toward reversing Roe versus the other?
2: Oh yeah, and as I said, that was my first response to you because you nailed it. I think that the members of the court. Again, it is. <laughs> oh, God. Sotomayor was desperately mean to say that if you're pro-life, you're political and you're politicizing the court. I, I had a response, but I, didn't, I couldn't give it. But um, it's a matter of numbers: who has the majority on the court? It's extreme. It is politicized. The Supreme Court has been solid, politicized since Marbury versus Madison. Since it's been politicized since John j s Definitely it was politicized in the case of, of slavery. They never revisited. They ruled that a slave could be owned, and it had to be Congress and the Senate that changed that. And then they had to abide by that. So the Supreme Court has always been political. But what they're trying to do is imply, well, if you're pro-life, then you're political. If you're pro-life ruling, it looks like, from the nature of this question, we got Five. The only person in question, from my perspective, is, is, uh, is how Justice Roberts would like to define it. And the word that was used most often is the question of viability. Viability. Can a state protect a child before viability? And wisely, I believe it was, Kavanaugh said, well, you know, that's been changing a lot. And the problem is, if we draw the line at 15 weeks, what's next? Could it be 13 or 11? And so, it's clear he recognizes this. The good guys, you might say, they see it. Judge Alito, what a stellar, stellar mind. What a great guy. And again, Justice Thomas, it was just, it was fun to listen to them. There were other questions I wish had been asked and other answers I wish had been given. And they were very gracious, by the way. They are extremely gracious to the Solicitor General of the United States. She was representing – her name is Elizabeth Trelogar. She's very well-spoken. But essentially, she represented extreme leftist, radical feminist theory, which has become what the media repeats every day (laughs) – You just have the right to choose. Come on, let's move on. And so this liberty interest, which Kavanaugh summed up very well, the question is, is it the liberty interest that needs to be at stake here, or is there a life interest that's at stake? And you can't have both in this. This, That's the problem, as Kavanaugh said. It's really going to have to be one or the other. So that is a pretty electric communication that, hey, it's one or the other, which means it's very likely Roe is going to go down. Now, that decision will be exciting to read. That'll be exciting when that's released.
1: Let's take a time out. I want to come back to more of our dialogue after a quick update on traffic here. We're visiting with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and the host of Life Matters, which comes your way every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. here on KFAX, where he takes a deep dive into these issues of a variety of matters, literally when it comes to protecting life from cradle to grave. We're talking today about the Supreme Court. Today began the first day of oral arguments as they are reviewing the um, hotly contested Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. The Texas case is another interesting one with a slightly different dynamic to it. And, of course, at the end of the day, the big question is how early on can we really get a sense of the direction from questioning as to where members of the high court will go? I think it's pretty clear where things will go in terms of opinions Um, that eventually will will be handed down by Neil Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and um, and Barrett. But as for the others, and what about that all-important potential swing vote of Chief Justice John Roberts, a Republican, a Bush appointee, who in recent years has shown a greater propensity to lean more on the liberal side of the court? Will he come through, or will he disappoint? More of our dialogue with Brian Johnston as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: The U.S. Supreme Court began oral hearings in the case of the contentious Mississippi law, which bans abortion after 15 weeks. We're visiting with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And uh, Brian, undoubtedly, this is being watched very closely closely. By all sides. Um, And while certainly, as we mentioned, this is going to be a difficult one to call because there are some potential variables in here, including not least of which is the potential swing vote by Supreme Court justice. That that John Roberts, that you know potentially I think could go either way. Uh, I'm not a betting man, but well, if you had to guess where do you think it might come down, and is there a chance if we fail to succeed in this case, what about the uh, the Texas case?
2: Well, good questions all. and one of the things I, I think because of the three new faces, uh, coupled with stellar, stellar, Judges like Alito, like Thomas. Again, Thomas was so vilified. Uh, and by the way, that was by Joe Biden. <laughs> at, the, at the Thomas hearing, Joe Biden wanted to get him. You know, the accusations are guilt. That's a very, if you haven't seen the, the documentary on uh, Justice Thomas, his, his background is incredible. I'm not up from poverty, but he is such a brilliant mind but he has been there for a while and as I said Justice Alito and so we've got five right there with the three new justices, that's five. The sixth vote is of course the Chief Justice and he has always said he's pro-life and you've touched on and and again I try not to be too mean um, even to my opponent, (laughs) so you know what I'm talking about Um, as Lincoln said, well that's how you, you win friends and that's how you destroy enemies but I don't not that Justice Roberts is listening to us, but what a Chief Justice does is helps determine what all these different individuals' opinions how it's going to be cobbled together. And we saw the great alarm. They they do that a lot. They will often pick up the final decision and write it if they think they can do a better job, but they might even twitch. Switch the balance in order to get certain questions emphasized. I'll be charitable. Perhaps that's what he was doing on the Obamacare vote. Perhaps. Perhaps he wanted to get a certain point about taxation because that's supposedly why Obamacare was upheld. It was legal because it was a tax, even though it was never presented as a tax. That was never what it was. So maybe that's a point he felt he needed to make, but it stunned us all when Justice Roberts literally changed his position. We hope he doesn't do that, but really, because in one sense there are already five clearly outspoken pro-life votes, uh, hopefully Justice Roberts' nuances won't mess things up. But the real question is, all of these justices are still independent. And they're going to make very entertaining. Justice Rehnquist has become one of my favorite judges because he was very insightful. And it's not that I agree with him in everything, but he, he was very important at nuancing. And he actually joined the Casey decision, but he did it so he could really destroy Roe. He was not ultimately successful. But in his Casey arguments that he wrote, and it's now standing dicta, he destroyed all of the rhetoric that upheld Roe. And you might say, the Casey decision adjusted Roe. I hate to put it that way. But the role of each Supreme Court justice is to play their best hand, as they see it. And so as a chief justice, you've got to take these, these nine members, which would include yourself, and then come out with, okay, this is how we're going to present this, and then call it together. So he's kind of a coach he's kind of a dad, he's kind of a mom, (laughs) he has to keep everybody happy. So uh, I'm trying to be kind to Chief Justice Roberts, but in this case, because of what we heard today, and because of those existing clearly pro-life judges, I believe we're going to see Roe finished. How it's finished will be the question, but I think Roe is very likely
1: going down now when you say finished and how it's finished that raises a couple of very important questions pro-lifers have been doing this battle for my goodness 43 plus years Um, some might look at this and say that uh, or nearly 50 now that i think of it some might look at this and say okay we're finally going to cross the victory line here boy we can take a big sigh of relief this is over with should we be celebrating at this point or is that too premature
2: I think it is. I literally had to drop the guy. I was on for about forty five minutes with our our staff counsel, Sheila Green, and sheila and I had submitted a an amicus brief for the Texas law uh and we were talking about all of that, and that was her, she texted me, well, should we open the champagne uh i I'm, I'm reluctant to do that because of the nature. Let's go back. And this came up several times from both sides Brown v Board of Education is the very famous decision in the fifties that prohibited separate but equal, which was the the racial laws of the south we didn 't see it in California, but many many states had separate but quote equal uh, facilities, public facilities, depending on your skin color. And that wasn't taken down until the 50s. The Plessy v. Ferguson had been passed in, I think, 1898. And so that was 52, 54 years later. Um, and that was discussed several times today because it was overturning that precedent. And the nature of the questions was, was it the time? If plus, if uh, Brown v. Board of Education was presented the following year, would it have overturned Plessy v. v. Ferguson, which is what set up separate but equal and the Jim Crow laws? If it had been heard the very next year, would no? It- it- she wouldn't admit it, but basically that was a line of, of questioning that. um uh, Justice Kavanaugh was offering to indicate that, look, it's gonna have to be overturned, and that's what happened with Plessy. Even though Brown versus Board of Education was upheld, it was a very different answer, but it was a very long time, and now that kind of time has passed on Roe. He was basically saying, we have to protect life.
1: It'll be fascinating to watch this as they uh, move through the oral arguments here, and uh, you're indicating we would anticipate no decision until probably mid-year of 2022?
2: Well, that's a good question, because in in January of 73, they started releasing in January. (laughs) So they can decide when they want to release it after they've wrapped up their hearings. They They often then have to have them all released, I think, by June. So uh, I forget right off what the calendar says when they, they will likely start releasing decisions. But that would be sweet if it was in January. Maybe, you know, do it on the anniversary. I don't know. But, yeah, we're going to see it next year. And it depends on how they – I'm hoping they will hear Texas before that. I, my hope, again, I'm a bit eccentric, but my hope is they hear Texas and can join them.
1: Well, we certainly stand with you, and uh, we'll be praying in that direction. There's uh, much to tell in the future as the uh, continuation of the debate continues, uh, and uh, we'll just have to watch and see and pray and hope for the best outcome. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian follows these and other stories in greater depth every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on his program, Life Matters. We invite you to tune in for that. Lots of information available on the web as well at californiaprolife.org. R-G. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Brian, thanks so much for the time and for the update. Lots to be praying about, to be sure. Let's get a look at traffic.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right,
1: welcome back to The Conversation. 535 here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the first day of December. Of course, with the holidays in full swing, it's a joyous time of year for many of us but for many others of us not so all that exciting and if you couple in the stressors of the last year what with the impact of covid on the way we live on our health perhaps loved ones who have been lost the changes related to the way we go to school the way we do work all of it has a lot of people quite frankly a bit on edge for some of us we recognize that we're not perhaps managing our emotions over all of this very well. We reach out. We go to church. We go to pray. We talk to a friend. We seek counseling, and we manage to get through it. But there are some folks that find themselves in a very awkward position where they're almost in, locked in a jail of, of stress and anxiety, and they know they've got the key somewhere. They just can't seem to find it. And in the meanwhile, they struggle struggle to the point where escaping seems to be a potentially viable solution. Why do some struggle with suicidal thoughts while others seemingly don't? Or do some just control those thoughts better? A new book deals with this topic called The Suicide Solution, Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness, newly published by Salem Books, the same fine folks that own this radio station. And joining me is its co-author, Dr. Daniel Amina. Dr. Amina is a child and adolescent psychologist, earned his medical degree at the University of California Los Angeles School of Medicine, and is the associate medical director of the Amen Clinics, a nationwide network of pioneering brain health clinics founded by Daniel Amen. And Dr. Amina, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us.
3: Hello, Craig. Thank you so much for having me on. I am honored. It is a privilege to be on here with you today.
1: So give us uh, give us your insights. What about this question? Uh, why do some people seemingly struggle with suicidal thoughts while others apparently, if they never have them, at least they are somehow able to put them in the right box and push them aside and, and not allow it to control their lives? Is, is this differences in coping mechanisms? Is it brain chemistry? What exactly is it?
3: So wonderful question, an in-depth question that we could probably spend the whole hour talking about plus, but I'll give you kind of a short answer of it. We all have an innate self-preservation mechanism. um, And it's a mix of things that actually contribute to it. There's a hardware of us or the biology of us that contributes to staying alive. And there's a software, the psychology of us that also contributes to our wellness and staying alive. When someone is more susceptible to suicidal thoughts, it's a breakdown in one or both of these areas. So for some unfortunate individuals, it's a biological issue, meaning that at some point along the way, their biology of their brain has been impacted in such a way that it allows them to have more suicidal thinking, more suicidal thoughts. And you'd wonder, why would the brain even have that capability? Um, the brain has the capability to do quite a bit of things, um, and one of them in, in self-preservation is also being able to think about the worst-case scenario, right? Think about the lion that could potentially jump out of the bush. If the parts of your brain are injured, it can impact how often you see that threat. You see more threat around you than maybe others would, and it makes it hard to dissipate that threat or to push that threat away. And after a while, it can be so overwhelming that the threat becomes self, and those intrusive thoughts jump in so aggressively. And for some people, it, it, death actually seems as a relief in in that in that way. Now, on the other side, there's the software elements of it, and and that's the psychology of us, the things we learn over time um, in how we're raised and in our experiences. What we read, what we learn, and our faith and such—what um, we call—we simplify down to our the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. Unfortunately, that story can contain bugs, right? And that's why we use this analogy of hardware, software. It can contain bugs that can impact um, how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive and manage our stressors. So, unfortunately, for some of us, we can have bugs in our hardware, bugs in our software, or in both which can make it more likely that someone would have suicidal thinking.
1: So are there cases where maybe as you're suggesting that those, those coping skills to deal with those stressors are broken or are they simply underdeveloped, meaning that, that, Part of it has to do with, uh, you know, the old nurture nature thing. Uh, part of it has to do with the way you were raised, viewpoints on life, perspectives on dealing with challenges. You know, uh, some might ha- have parents that when they, a big stressor comes along, they, you know, pull up themselves by the bootstraps and say, we're going to lick this problem and get out there and go team go. And others, you know, maybe retreat to the corner, close the windows and open up a bottle. So I- I- is it part of it that it, it, it was neither developed or, or coping skills that somehow maybe have been broken by a life event.
3: All of the above. Wow. That's the thing. And it's unique for each individual, right? So so let me just use one of the examples you mentioned there. The pull-up-the-bootstrap type parent, they may have communicated that to their child. But let's say their child has learned that, hey, I'm just supposed to, like, work harder, figure it out, get better in my faith, push deeper... But they have the biology issue. They have the hardware side of it. There was an injury, they had a head injury, they played a lot of football or whatever it may be. They went off to war or whatever it may be and they got the, they dealt with a concussion blast or whatever. Um, and it changed the way their brain fires and works. Hmm. It's not as simple for them, even they may have that innate ability to say, I just gotta work harder, I gotta try harder, the harder they work it, it won't change the fact that their biology was injured. Now, on the other side, again, using that same analogy of, well, there are some parents who don't teach that, that pull up the bootstraps thing, and they, yes, that can also be problematic, right, because it leads to something called problem-solving avoidance, right? Moving into this strategy of like, okay, I'm just going to pretend the problem's not there and wait for it to go away until it gets to a certain point where the problems don't go away, mm. right? And then the next avoidance thing is to run away. Um, but where do you finally run away when there's nowhere else to run? That's when some people start considering ending their life. So it it ends up being a combination of things, unfortunately, and it's unique for each individual, and that's what the book tries to address, finding the particular uh, concern for that individual.
1: And, And I think that's important for those of us that don't struggle with this, that have a friend or a loved one who does, to understand that there's not one single cause nor one single solution. So sometimes in a simplistic form, we might suggest to somebody who is struggling to say, well, you just need to get a better perspective on life. You need to think more positively, things of this sort. Um, and yet, unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. You know, I, I find it interesting that uh, you think of, for example, the, the the pain reaction. If we begin to get close to, say, a, you know, a hot um, burner on the stove, Uh, that that reaction that tells our muscles to recoil when we when we feel the heat on the tips of our fingers is a good thing because it's telling us, hey, don't don't keep moving toward that direction. You're going to hurt yourself. And so Mm -hmm. that pain can act as a warning signal. And I suppose, in a sense, anxiety can do the same thing, a, a means of telling you, hey, there's there's something wrong here that that needs some attention and yet some people get stuck and end up getting buried by the anxiety and others say oh when i get that kind of prompt i know that i need to engage and and address this problem that i might be facing and i'm i'm wondering in a case like that is it another example where the the old adage of a fight flight response is somehow inferior or broken uh,
3: again another wonderful example um So the fight-flight response is a necessary response, right? It's a necessary thing. It keeps you alive, right? But imagine that system is broken. And that literally happens. It breaks. We don't think of the brain in a way of, like, it can break, but it can. And that's the thing about, honestly, the fact that we haven't in psychiatry, psychology, routinely looked at the brain, we think of it as, you know, any, especially time we consider mental health-related concerns, we think of it. There's a stigma with it, right? It's just you know, you need to try harder, you need to have more faith, you you, you 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 need to just push harder in some ways. And at times, it's not just as simple as that. If you saw someone with a broken leg, you wouldn't say, um, uh, "Run, you know, just try. It. You can run. You can pick up. You can you can figure it out. Um, you just need to be more positive." Um, you'd recognize, oh no, there's there's something wrong there. You you probably wouldn't be able to lift that or carry that or whatever. You're not lazy. There's something obviously wrong, and actually that's one of the perspectives we have because I work at a clinic called Amon Clinics, and one of the things we do is neuroimaging, which has given us kind of this new perspective on being able to see how the brain looks and acts, to so see the activity patterns of the brain, seeing if a brain is healthy, or unhealthy, or if it's trying working too hard or not working hard enough, and it's very helpful to our clients because it helps them relate to oh, that relates to my symptoms that's what's been going on for me it's not this stigma thing it's a medical thing and 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 in the book we don't keep it just as the medical because yes the medical element of it is true and we want to actually emphasize that because there's many people who don't know that a lot of this is medical but there's also this other part that we can continually nurture which is that internal narrative Narrative about who we are, how we manage our stressors. I mean, are we the hero of our story or are we the victim of our story, right? How do we interpret the incidences and such that occur around us? How do we manage those anxiety moments? Um, that is also an area that becomes um, an avenue for improvement and healing.
1: We're visiting with Dr. Daniel Amina. He, again, is the co-author of a newly released book called The Suicide Solution, Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness. And, of course, certainly during this time of the year, as people are wrestling with sometimes the negative emotions that surround the holidays, it might be the remembrance of losing a loved one during this time of the year and the, the frustration and loneliness of all of that, a variety of triggers during the holiday season. Add to that the stress that, frankly, we've all been feeling. Because of COVID, and it sets up a scenario where, unfortunately, some of us some of us manage to to kind of muscle through, and others don't do as well. Ironically, 16 million American adults struggle with this issue of suicidal thoughts. Some have even made an attempt at it. And when you think of reaching a point in life where your sense of, of of opportunity to escape to get out from underneath what you're dealing with becomes so impossible, so overwhelming that you feel as if permanent escape is the only solution uh, These are people that we need to understand um are are broken in a sense, but because they're broken doesn't mean they can't be mended. It also doesn't mean and I love the analogy that Dr. Amina uses it doesn't mean that we can just you know give them the pep talk. Yes, I know your leg is broken, but you just need to try harder, you know that just doesn't, from a practical standpoint, work out that way. And I suppose the same is true when it comes to managing our emotions, dealing with depression, facing anxiety, and most importantly, being able to develop healthy uh, coping skills that can get us through these challenging times and the thoughts where some people feel as if suicide is the only way out. The good news is there are other answers, and you can overcome it. We're going to go deeper as our conversation with Dr. Daniel Amina continues here on Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Dr. Daniel Amina, my guest today, he is the co-author of The Suicide Solution, Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness. This is an issue that in particular seems to um, seems to come to the forefront during the holiday season as people Um, have challenges dealing with um, so much that the holiday season can bring and mean and um, it's far more as we're learning than just buckling up and you know pulling yourself up by the bootstraps Um, the big question of course is um, how do you learn to manage the emotions and I guess one of the one of the challenges here too for people that that get into that moment, you and I, doctor, can take a step back and say, well, no, wait a minute. Let me analyze the situation. There's a workaround. It's not always going to be like this. I'm not going to have these feelings forever. And we we, we learn to kind of assess the situation. And then we have the capacity um, at, um, I, I guess we'll call it impulse regulation, to 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 resist the temptation to try to find that, that quote-unquote easy solution, which you and I both know is never best, never easy. Um, is that something that is challenged by people then, that that seriously contemplate suicide, that their ability to assess is hampered, and that under other circumstances the, the lack of the impulse regulation can cause them to take actions that you and I would not consider?
3: Um so w- well stated I mean there's actually a lot of biology and research behind this in particular um some of the things we've seen in individuals who are more likely to attempt suicide or challenges in baseline problem solving um something i mentioned earlier was problem solving uh, avoidance a tendency towards negative evaluations of self and future okay um, and there are particular parts of our brain that impacts this. one of it is our frontal lobes, our prefrontal cortex okay that 's the front part so about your forehead. That part of your brain impacts all those things I just said so you can struggle in doing all those things I said problem solving problem solving avoid the tendency to use problem solving avoidance or having negative evaluations if your frontal lobe isn 't working as well that 's one thing that 's a biological thing you didn 't do anything about that that could have been. Um you were born that way. That could mean you had an injury, you had a toxin exposure, um, you eat the wrong foods that because that can actually happen. You you were exposed to molds in your house and that impacted you. All right? That could impact how your frontal lobes turn on. And we already know that your frontal lobes is one of the places that manages your impulses. So if your emotional brain or your limbic brain is generating these strong negative um feelings and your frontal lobes is the part that's supposed to regulate that, but your frontal lobe isn't working well, and isn't able to go through these steps of creating a more positive evaluation of the potential in the future um, or problem solving. Then of course it's going to be easier for your brain to go. Death is the only outcome, right? That that is, is potentially plausible. Now we've we've seen that people who are highly successful, highly intelligent. Can get caught up in in that thought process that can lead to them to take their life. It's it's, it's all over, unfortunately, in popular media. You'll see people who are very successful, very capable people who look up to them, um, and even sometimes our artists, our creatives. I often see it in those of our of, of our, my clients, or even in in in, in popular media, um, because they just feel more. Some people We don't realize that some people feel to a greater depth than others. It's almost like the ability to see color, but see color richer. Some people feel emotions richer. So imagine if you feel emotions richer, have a prefrontal cortex for some reason that isn't working as well or as efficiently, or you've been using substances like alcohol excessively over time that has diminished the function of your frontal lobes or you have injured your frontal lobes because you had a head injury you forgot about in your teens or whatever, right? And then you just have that perfect storm of, of troubles and problems and such. And please note, I haven't even talked about the clients who dealt with early life trauma, right? Early life trauma is just deleterious to the brain. It changes the way you see the world. Like it literally just changes your wiring around how you protect self how you look at others and assess threat, your brain is perpetually on threat detection. It's very hard to feel peace. It's very hard to feel happy when your brain is just looking at threat all the time. You could be in a nice vacation spot and whatever, and you're like, what could go wrong? Right? Yep. When someone's yep. living like that chronically, it makes it difficult for them to be happy, and it's difficult for others to even understand what they're going through.
1: And there's not, I guess, at the end of the day, not just an emotional response to all of this. But I've got to imagine, Dr. Amina, that there is a physiological response. In other words, the constant stress, the constant pressure, the, the inability to, to either balance or avoid the, the feelings and the thoughts... And that sense of being overwhelmed. I mean, my goodness, it's almost like being you know the old adage, you know, being pecked to death by geese. One goose, not so bad. Thousands of them, nonstop, consistently, and and you know, you you feel like you're 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 ready to give up.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and and un, unfortunately, and again, this is one of those things where it's hard because we don't always walk in someone else's shoes, but it's how the brain interprets all these particular stressors right, how it um, prioritizes this mix of stressors. Um, they could be positive things that are happening along the way, too, but if the brain prioritizes those, those stressors, it will, it will focus in on them and generate negative emotions on, on them, generate the inflammatory response that comes with negative emotions. It actually changes how your physical body works you have more stomach issues, you have more skin issues, your immune system isn't quite as great, you maybe have more autoimmune related stuff is going on. It impacts your cognition, your thinking in itself, because you're under that chronic stress. Um, I want to emphasize the way the book is set up is to set it up to present what the data is, to present what is actually happening so people have have that knowledge base. But then we shift pretty rapidly into, now here's what you do about it. So as much as we want to present the data, we want to present that data so that you know why the next steps are important. One of the things, uh, one of the maxims I live by as far as my treatment is a quote from Seligman, it's treatment is not just fixing what is broken, it is nurturing what is best. So yes, we will talk about things that needs to be fixed, but we'll also talk about things that we need to nurture, things that bring wellness, um, things that are giftings or our talents that we need to build up because that fills us up
1: too. And, of course, at the end of the day, also helps to develop those and hone those coping skills in other ways that can be useful in addressing a whole variety of, of stressors because you can deal with the stressor of the moment, but now tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, something new comes along. And having the skills in kind of that toolbox, so to speak, to be able to recognize what it is, respond to it, and manage to manage it that That's that's the real key to success. The book is called The Suicide Solution, Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness, newly published by Salem Books. You'll find it through a variety of resources, of course, through Amazon.com. You can also get more information online at amen, just like it sounds, A-M-E-N, amenclinics.com. And Dr. Daniel Amina, thank you so much for the time. And uh, for those listening, if you're struggling with this, um, don't be afraid to speak up. There's help out there and people that can help guide you to work through and gain the kind of skills that you need to manage through all of this. Dr. Daniel Amina, again, the book, The Suicide Solution Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness. It's uh, 6 o'clock from KFAX.
0: This report is sponsored by